Hello and welcome back to the Undisciplined Podcast. It's your host, Dr. Nico Beitendach. And this is our crowning episode of the reading series on Hans Kelsen's Pure Theory of Law. It's an interview with Dr. Lars Vinks, Associate Professor at the Faculty of Law of the University of Cambridge, author of several articles and books on Hans Kelsen. I think there is no one more qualified to talk about the work of Kelsen than Professor Vinks. This marks the end of our series on Hans Kelsen. I hope you found it enjoyable and informative, and I look forward to the next one. But anyway, without further ado, here is my conversation with Professor Vinks. Dr. Lars Vinks, welcome to Undiscipline. I'm very honored to have you as a guest and very excited to talk to you about your work and also hopefully a bit about Hans Kelsen, who is something, someone that I've been reading lately, and it's an honor to speak to a real expert on this topic. So thank you very much and welcome. Yes, it's my great pleasure to be here, and, and I look forward to discussing our shared interests and uh, look forward to your questions. Yes. Thank you. So it's traditional on this podcast for me to, before we get into the substantive topic, just to a short academic autobiography from you. So maybe how you got into legal theory generally, how specifically you've published quite a lot on Hans Kelsen, how you got into Hans Kelsen's theory, what's the appeal of that for you and the work that you're doing? Yes, so, so my academic biography is a bit unusual. So I'm originally from, from Germany and I um, started out doing an undergraduate degree in, in philosophy and history as, as well as political science. And um, in, in the course of doing that degree, I took an undergraduate and introductory course that was taught in, in the um, Department of Philosophy at the University of Heidelberg, where I was a student, um, in legal theory or legal philosophy. And that's how I got familiarized with Hart and with Fuller and Dworkin and, and I guess the um, the, the, the standard mainstream Anglo-American authors that, that were taught in Germany as well. And um, I guess my interest in, in Hart in particular then led me to read um, on my own some of Kelsen's works because, of course, he's one of the characters that are discussed in the concept of law. And um, that is how I developed an interest in Kelsen. And um, uh, I did a PhD in philosophy then at the University of Toronto in, in Canada and my, my project originally was to write about um, theories of sovereignty with, with a focus on both Carl Schmitt and Hans Kelsen, who, of course, um, like Schmitt, was, was very interested in the concept of sovereignty. But um, it turned out when I was doing my PhD work that the project was too ambitious and too large, and um, I ended up writing uh, about Kelsen um, exclusively. But I'm still interested in, in both Kelsen and Schmitt, and my interest in Kelsen is um, not merely in um, his legal theory, the pure theory of law. So I'm also very interested in Kelsen's political philosophy and his uh, constitutional theory. And, and I think that it's interesting or instructive to look at the, the pure theory of law um, in that context and not, not just as a, as a purely jurisprudential project. Yeah, I think that's very important. That was a bit of your background, but of course, we're talking about Kelsen. So I thought perhaps for for someone who's not that familiar or who has only the 
kind of typical undergraduate cursory overview of Carlson. If you could talk about the biography of Carlson a little bit, but more specifically or, or also, which I like to emphasize is that, you know, we, that we sometimes tend to study theorists or philosophers kind of in a timeless vacuum. And it's important for me to emphasize that they're always situated in a certain time and place that has its own social questions that thinkers try to resolve, right? So not only talking about Kelsen a little bit, but also maybe about the milieu that he found himself in and what were mm -hmm. the important kind of, although he's in Austria, this kind of Weimar era questions that he was specifically trying to address through his writings. Yes, I mean, that, that is a, a, a very large question, and there is a lot, but... So Kelsen, Kelsen um, uh, lived a very long, and, and in some periods at least, a quite an eventful life. So he was uh, born in, in 1881, I think, and um, his, his family came from Galicia, so, so the western part of, of today's Ukraine, um, but um, they moved to, first to Prague and then to Vienna while he was still very young, and was a Jewish family... Um, Guess upwardly mobile um, bourgeois trying to make uh, make it in in the capital, and Kelsen, of course, was was um, someone who 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 tried to um, establish himself as a scholar in in Vienna in, in the later decades of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, studied law, had an interest in philosophy as well, and um, I think uh, produced a few very remarkable works already before the start of the First World War that established him um, at the University of Vienna, in particular his book on um, Hauptprobleme der Staatsrechtslehre, so um, a book on the key problems of, of public law theory, which anticipates many of the um, issues that, that he dealt with throughout his life, so that was published in 1911. Um, but of course, this, this scholarly life was interrupted by the First World War, um, and in the First World War, um, Kelsen did military service, um, he was used as a legal advisor, I think, by the Ministry of Defense um, in the later years of the war, and that uh, connected him more closely to political circles than had been the case beforehand. And perhaps as a result, he was then quite heavily involved in the transition from the monarchy to the Democratic Austrian Republic in 1919-1920. And he is, he is known for uh, having been the person who drafted the successive drafts of the uh, Austrian Constitution of 1920, um, that is still in, in somewhat modified form and enforced today in Austria. And um, this constitution was, was quite innovative in uh, being the first constitution that provided for a specialized constitutional court um, empowered um, to, to review um, legislation for its conformity to constitutional norms. And Kelsen indeed was then appointed um, as one of the judges on this constitutional court and was a, was a leading voice on this court um, throughout uh, the 1920s and uh, uh, was made a full professor at the University of Vienna and developed the pure theory together with some collaborators like Fedros and Merkel and, and Sander and um, built up a legal philosophical school that was perhaps the leading positivist school of jurisprudence at the time in the world, not just in, in Austria or in Europe. But um, he, he did experience uh, problems in Austria the early 1930s. So uh, conservatives in Austria were unhappy with some of the decisions that he had 
been instrumental in, in, in taking at the constitutional court. So in particular, there were decisions about matters of marriage and divorce and whether divorced people could remarry, at least in a civil marriage, that um, led, led to great protests against the constitutional court. And Kelsen was attacked in public um, by the conservative press, um, sometimes with an anti-Semitic undertone, obviously. And um, he uh, uh, stepped down from the constitutional court and left Austria in the early 1930s and 1932, I think, to take up a position at the University of Cologne in Germany. Um, and, and there he was, uh, for a very short time, um, a colleague of Karl Schmitz, who also was appointed to the University of Cologne, not long after Kelsen had been appointed there. But um, of course, this was a very, very uh, short sojourn because in 1933, the Nazis took power in Germany and they removed all scholars of Jewish ancestry from professorships in in Germany. And so Kelsen then became uh, a refugee, spent some time in um, the Czech Republic in Brno, I think, and then went to Geneva in Switzerland and taught there for a few years before he emigrated to the U.S., perhaps in the fear that the Nazis might eventually um, conquer Switzerland as, as they had conquered other European countries. And um, in, in the U.S., uh, Kelsen had some difficulty to establish himself at a fairly advanced age in a common law context with which he was not familiar and, and writing in a language that I suppose he didn't master very well, at least initially. Um, but but he uh, eventually managed to obtain a position as a professor of political science at the University of California, Berkeley. And that is where he lived out um, the rest of his life until 1973, when he died at a very high age. And so, um, of course, this, this short biography shows that uh, there was a lot happening in that life and a lot that, that was going on. And, and Kelsen was clearly involved with, with political turmoil at, at several stages in his career. And, of course, um, even though his pure theory is meant to be a theory that is non-ideological, non-political, ideologically neutral, um, I think one can see in, in many of his political writings that there are a number of political concerns that's, that seem to be motivations for, for much of his academic work. And I guess if one wanted to describe his political outlook, one, one might say that he's, he's a liberal and he's, he's maintaining the hope, perhaps a little bit like, like John Rawls, that it's possible to develop both um, a form of doing jurisprudence, but also constitutional theory that is uh, neutral towards different substantive conceptions of the good that can form a kind of um, platform for political consensus. And um, I think he's, he's interested, especially in his theory of democracy, to develop that sort of vision and how he writes about a democratic constitution and about the role of courts and judges in, in that type of constitution. Um, and so, so that interest is supplemented by a second, of course, which, which is a reflection of the experience of war, both the First World War and the Second World War. So Kelsen was interested throughout his life in thinking about the possibilities for, for building an international legal order that was better able um, to control the violence that, that states use against each other. And um, so, so one of his projects was, was to vindicate the claim, which was still contested at the time, I guess, that international law is a bona fide instance of, of legal order. And he was uh, thinking a lot about how, how um, international law as, as an legal order could, could be um, provided with, with better functioning institutions, and in particular with um, international courts endowed with compulsory adjudication. And 
And so these are really, um, I think, the, the, the big political issues or the hopes, I guess, that are connected to his jurisprudential work. It's kind of sad in some way to take such a, a storied life and a varied theoretical and intellectual interest and try to to reduce it into a five minutes. I, but, of course, you said he had a very interesting and rich life. Mm. But in particular, I'm also quite interested by his time in Vienna specifically. And as we know that this period that he was active in Vienna, I would dare to say that Vienna was perhaps one of the most exciting places in the world at that point, Mm -hmm. um, intellectually and artistically. And we know that Kelsen was in contact with a lot of the intellectual movements that were happening in Vienna. Very famously, of course, the Vienna Circle in in uh, logical positivism. The other very interesting person that we know that he was a lot in contact with was Freud and psychoanalysis, and that these circles were in a complex network and overlap with each other, and Kelsen is somewhere within this network. Do you think that these different intellectual currents that were swirling around in Vienna at the time, do you think that they had a significant influence on him? There's, of course, the simple link that one can make between the Vienna Circle's logical positivism and Carlson's legal positivism, although, you know, those two terms should maybe not be confused or, or conflated too much. But to what extent do you think he was influenced by this exciting atmosphere that was happening in Vienna at this time? Uh, I, I should say that, or perhaps I should have said earlier, that there's actually a, a new biography of Kelsen, which has come out in German, I think, a year or two ago by Thomas Olechowski. And, and so um, I hope that this will be translated into English uh, before too long. And, and this will give, uh, I guess, ample information about these issues as far as I can tell, um, th- there isn't really much of a connection in, in terms of influence between Kelsen and the logical positivism of the Vienna Circle. And in, in Olechowski's biography, um, uh, th- there isn't really uh, a lot that's being reported on, on uh, contacts between these groups. So it seems to me that though Kelsen was a legal positivist, um, uh, he wasn't a logical positivist in, in, in the philosophical sense of the term. So, I mean, Kelsen's own philosophical background was neo-Kantian, or at least that's how he described his own philosophical background um, when, whenever he felt that he had to say something about it. Um, and here, I guess the the authors that, that he references are people like Hermann Cohen, um, the, the Marburg neo-Kantian. And of course, he was also um, in Heidelberg, I think, and he had contact with the Neo-Kantians in Heidelberg with Max Weber and the people who belong to this circle around uh, Rickert and Windelbahn. So, so I think that that's perhaps um, the philosophical background one should look at um, rather than than the logical positivism of the Vienna Circle. And um, of course, the the, the Neo-Kantian approach is Kantian, so so it is committed presumably to to the idea that that there are synthetic a priori um, truths in in um, in the cultural sciences that they were interested in analyzing and and uh, similarly for the law and 
I take it that Kelsen himself uh, could could be read in that light. Um, and in that case, I think one shouldn't say that he was a logical positivist, because of course the logical positivists have the idea that meaningful statements must either be based on um, empirical fact or they must be uh, statements of formal logic, analytical statements. So um, I, I don't think that Kelsen's project quite fits that very, very austere philosophical framework. And so, of course, the way he explains um, his own positivism is not by, by associating it with logical positivism, but rather by um, drawing this twofold contrast between, on the one hand, legal science and morality, and on the other hand, legal science and legal sociology. Um, and the claim is that legal science deals in normative statements um, like morality, not in descriptive statements. Therefore, it's to be separated from legal sociology. But the normativity that the legal scientist analyzes or talks about um, is not moral. It's peculiarly legal, and it's, it's based on the assumption of the basic norm of a legal system. And so, so the claim is that um, a legal theory has to be normative but not moral. And that is what Kelsen thinks um, the autonomy or the purity of legal science consists in. And so I take it the logical positivists would have been very, very skeptical of, of the general idea of normative discourse. And so, so it seems that his, his project doesn't, as I said, doesn't really fit their approach very well. And I, I don't think there's much historical evidence that he was influenced by, by these authors. Of course, the, the story is a little bit different for Freud, so he, he did interact with Freud quite a bit, but it seems to me that a lot of the interaction with Freud um, is taking place in contexts that, that don't belong to the pure theory, the jurisprudential project in the narrow sense, but to the wider interests in, in political and social theory that I try to reference. So, um, of course, Kelsen, I think, is interested in, in Freud's um, psychoanalysis as a, as a critique of ideology. And so... Um, Kelsen, Kelsen produced a number of works in which he tried to explain why legal discourse had, had become imbued with theological, metaphysical assumptions. And I think he, he takes it that Freud's uh, psychoanalysis can be helpful in thinking about these questions. And that, that's, I think, why, why he is uh, quite keen to, to, to read and to write about Freud in, in the context of works in... in legal sociology, legal anthropology, legal history that he produced. My next question is, is that is, is related to this. And I think also some of what you said already hints at that. Of course, Carlson and the pure theory is something that is taught to, I think, all undergraduate law students or in all, all law courses. And also, at least in, in my case, it was done very cursory, perhaps, you know, two or three lectures a week or two, and then we, you move mm. on again and you get this nutshell uh, summary of, of Kelsen's work and the pure theory. And only later, let's say as an undergraduate, uh, as, a, as a postgraduate, when I read the primary text for the first time myself, Pure Theory of Law and his other writings, you or I realized that there's a lot of it that this summarized version that you get as a young person is mm. in some ways a distortion of of the fuller and bigger picture you know not only mm. smaller but also in some some sense different i think yes what would you say and, and as we know a lot of people maybe even very good lawyers or even legal academics maybe never go 
to these particular primary sources. So what are the common misconceptions even among practicing lawyers or even legal academics, legal scientists about Kelsen that you often uh, encounter and that you think, you know, a, a reading of of his own primary texts quickly dispels and that comes to the fore? Hmm. Well, I think I think a common... Sorry to interrupt you, but uh, of course I'm assuming that you agree with this opinion of mine. Maybe you don't, but... Yes, I, no, I do, yes. So, so I think a, a common misconception about Kelsen arises from, from the fact that, that many commentators on Kelsen, many people who write about Kelsen, don't actually read Kelsen, and, or at least if they read Kelsen, perhaps they read only the pure theory of law, and they take a lot of the evaluation of, of that project from contemporary polemics um, uh, against Kelsen and, and reproduce these even today. So, so most commonly, I guess, people would, would latch on to Carl Schmitt's critique of Kelsen. And of course, what, what, what that critique claims is that um, Kelsen's legal theory is, is a kind of useless play with empty concepts um, that abstracts from the, the political ground of law and that becomes useless uh, as a result um, to, to address um, political issues or, or issues of uh, constitutional conflict um, and, and, and political conflict. And so it seems to me that this is a, a view that's that's mistaken because it uh, fails to take account of, of the full structure of Kelsen's project, which includes um, the pure theory of law as a jurisprudential approach, but which, which includes a lot of political, theoretical, and constitutional theoretical work besides. And so I take it one 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 way Kelsen wants to use the pure theory is as a critique of ideology. So. Um, starting point for, for Kelsen's theory is that legal science, in German we, we speak of Rechtswissenschaft, so Kelsen, Kelsen objects to the fact that legal science um, at the time in, in Austria and Germany that he starts his career, um, even though it calls itself a science, is not truly scientific. So he thinks that the conceptual frameworks that, that um, legal science works with in public law theory, for instance, um, are infused with um, political and moral assumptions that um, are, are not to be regarded as, as integral to the concept of law, um, but that are, uh, of course, defended or that are um, advocated under the guise of being essential components of the concept of law. Um, and so I think it's this, it's this type of ideology that Kelsen wants to attack and to undermine. And so he wants to argue that jurisprudence alone cannot justify um, political orientations or ideological orientations. Um, to do that, you need to engage in political and, and moral debate that must take place outside of analytical jurisprudence. And so the jurisprudential project is to offer um, a system of basic legal categories that is de-ideologized or demystified. But, but the point of this is not to say that, oh, this is all we should talk about. The point of it is to say that the political questions that we're interested in must not be confused with jurisprudential questions, but must be addressed directly as political issues. And, and of course, there are many writings of Kelsen's in, in the field of political theory, constitutional theory, that are uh, trying to do that, and, and where he is laying bare his own uh, political and moral convictions and is trying to develop them and argue for them. And I think it's this it's this part of Kelsen's oeuvre that has never received much attention and that lends a bit of superficial credence to this claim that oh, he was he was just this person who liked to play around with concepts, but who didn't really have 
anything interesting to say about politics. But I think once one sees the the, the overall structure of, of his work and doesn't reduce it to the pure theory of law, one can see that he's a very, very interesting um, political and constitutional theorist. And I think it's precisely this this dimension of his work that, that people tend to neglect. Yes, yeah, certainly. Speaking of theological and metaphysical concepts and a name that's already come up a few times right now and a name that seems to come up on this podcast a lot for some reason is that of Carl Schmidt. And you said that they were colleagues for a short while and they were in debate with each other, as you mentioned, and you wrote the book on that, literally. Do you mind sketching? I I don't know how well this episode is known, but do you mind sketching what was the contours and, and, and what was at stake in that debate? I mean, you can hardly kind of think of two more different legal theorists than, than Kelsen and Schmidt, but what was at the heart of their debate or conflict? Yes. Okay, so so I should say the book that that you uh, that you attribute to me it was just a, a in in the main a translation of texts of, of Schmitz and Kelsen's, and so I guess they should get credit for the content of the book. So I, I just uh, contributed an introduction and translated these writings, and so the 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 focus of that was um, the debate about constitutional review in in Weimar Germany in the 1920s uh, and early 1930s. So Kelsen, as, as I pointed out earlier, so he, he was instrumental in creating a constitutional court in, in Austria. And there was a debate in Weimar Germany in the 1920s whether an institution such as this should be created in Germany as well. And so there was a, um, a Supreme Court in, in Weimar Germany, the, the Reichsgericht, um, which, which was um, empowered or had been empowered by the constitution to um, deal with some constitutional issues. So um, they were empowered to, to um, adjudicate in conflicts between the federal government and the separate states um, of Weimar Germany. But, but it wasn't empowered in general to, to entertain constitutional complaints as a modern constitutional court tends to be. And so people in Germany at the time, um, or some people, at least some legal scholars, thought that Germany should go down the Austrian path and create um, a real constitutional court able to um, review legislative um, acts for, for their conformity to constitutional norms. And uh, uh, Kelsen himself, of course, was, was one of the authors who advocated for this uh, expansion of, of the court's powers. Uh, and he made that case at, at a meeting of the, of the German public law um, scholars um, in, in 1928, I think, in Vienna. So this was an annual conference of, of the leading people in German public law. And uh, what they did is every year they set a particular topic that they were to talk about and had two or three people give uh, a talk and then, then had other people chip in and, and discuss the matter. And, and these were quite influential, these conferences, in, in steering the, 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 the debates in, in public law in Weimar, Germany. And and so, so Kelsen... Um, advocated for the introduction of a constitutional court um, in 1928 in Germany. Um, but Schmidt, Schmidt was one of the people in Weimar Germany who were opposed um, to, to enhancing the powers of, of the, the Supreme Court to make it a true constitutional court. So he, he was, of course, a defender of the idea that the executive, the president, was to be regarded as 
the true guardian of the constitution. And so really the debate that, that's in, in that book um, that I translated is about, is about this question of constitutional guardianship. So should constitutional guardianship rest with the executive or with um, a court? And so, of course, what's, what's behind this debate is a different vision of, of what the law is or what, what a constitution is and how it works that you see in Schmidt and, and in Kelsen. And so Schmidt has this idea that we should, we should look at the constitution first and foremost in political terms. We should see it as a political decision taken by constituent power about how a community's basic social framework is to look like. And he thinks that um, this decision, once it's been taken, cannot be questioned by any constituted power, including the courts. Um, and the only agency that's legitimated to, to engage in constitutional guardianship is the president in the Weimar Republic, Forschmann, since they've been elected by the people as a whole in a direct election. And, and he thinks of constitutional guardianship just as a task of using powers of emergency to um, to protect the social stability that's necessary for the constitution to function. And so I guess Kelsen's view of a constitution on its face is a lot more legalistic. So, so Kelsen thinks of the constitution as a, as a system of, of legal norms. And uh, uh, he thinks that the point of having a constitution is that these legal norms are to program, to govern, to constrain um, the actions of the legislature, but also of the executive. And, and he thinks that it's pointless to have a constitution such as this a legal constitution unless it is enforceable um, against the, the uh, institutions that are supposed to be constrained by it. And, and so really, sometimes it seems that the debate is, is a debate between two people who talk past each other because they have such very, very different contrasting visions of, uh, of what a constitution is and, and what it's uh, supposed to do. Um, but my own sympathies, needless to say, are, are, are to some extent with, with Kelsen. And, and I think that um, Schmidt, Schmidt is too dismissive of the legal dimension of constitutionality. Um, it's too exclusively focused on the political. And Kelsen's arguments against Schmidt's um, rejection of a constitutional court, I think they're, they're quite cogent, quite interesting, and they deserve more, more attention even today. So one way to think about this debate is to say that it has a certain resemblance to the debate between um, political constitutionalists and legal constitutionalists in the contemporary uh, context, where um, political constitutionalists claim that judicial review is illegitimate because it takes political decisions inevitably that are to be assigned to a democratic legislature if they are to be taken legitimately. And I think Kelsen has a number of very interesting thoughts about how, how to disarm this, this attack against legal constitutionalism that, that in my view, deserve more, more recognition than they get at this point. Well, I think certainly those questions are probably, I don't know about every country, but I can think of some countries where, where this, this question is, is actually still quite topical, uh, perhaps the United States or. Yes. Yeah. yeah so, um, but then we're getting to the end. So I want to ask you while we're on the topic of debates, you know, much later than, than his debate with Schmidt. Kelsen also had the debate with HLA Hart and also in our reading series after a pure theory, we're doing Hart's concept of law. So I wonder going beyond this era, um, the later phase of Kelsen, you said also became more concerned with international law, almost in 
some sense a century later or getting to a century later after a lot of Carlson's writing, do you think that it's still very relevant for legal theory and legal legal debates today? Or is it is it assigned to intellectual history? One point I could think of is is whether today we we are still struggling with the question of of law with and it's it's intermingling with with politics and morality. I think that's I don't know if I would say it's more relevant than a hundred years ago, but it's certainly still very relevant. How do you feel about the contribution that Carlson can make to legal theory and these political, legal, moral questions that we are facing in the 21st century? Well, perhaps one, one thing I should say is that th though I admire H.L.A. Hart very much and, and I'm, I'm a great fan of, of the concept of law, uh, I think that what, one of the one of the weaknesses of that book uh, and, and, and perhaps of Hart's engagement with Kelsen in general is that he, he seems to be quite uncomprehending and, 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 and uh, ungracious in, in how he treats uh, Kelsen in, in the concept of law. And that's had a great influence, I guess, on how he's been perceived in the Anglo-American debate, at least. And so I think that uh, if, if you look at the concept of law, I mean, many of the key ideas in the concept of law are anticipated in Kelsen's work, and, and Hart was surely inspired by Kelsen's work, for, for example, in developing the idea of a rule of recognition or in thinking about um, the hierarchy of legal norms and, and of course, in um, thinking about the separation between law and morality. Uh, and what, what Hart does in, in, in his book, in a sense, is to Never, never actually admit that he is inspired by Kelsen in these respects. So all you hear about Kelsen is that he has these very, very strange and crazy views about the unity of law, or um, or about laws being uh, imperatives. That that Hart thinks is just a variant on the Austinian view. Um, and so I think that um, a lot of people who read the concept of law get the impression that oh, oh, uh, Kelsen's theory at best is a sort of inferior version of of the theory that. Hart develops like Austin's, um, and therefore it can be safely left aside in, in jurisprudential debate. And so, I think that effect of the concept of law was quite, quite devastating to Kelsen's reputation, and, and unjustly so, because I think Hart is not always uh, giving um, uh, interpretations of Kelsen's ideas and his intentions that that are altogether accurate. And so, I think that. Um, in legal theoretical terms, it would be quite helpful, quite desirable for people to look beyond the standard descriptions that have been given of Kelsen's work um, in, in the Hartian tradition. Now, the other thing one, one should say, though, is that uh, Kelsen has, has never really been pushed aside to the same extent in, in a global context. So, so there are a number of, a number of, of contexts in which Kelsen is, is still regarded as the, the, the foremost legal theorist and Hart has sort of assigned the second rank. So this seems to be happening in, in Italy, um, in South America, where, where there are many very interesting legal philosophers, including Eugenio Bulligin, who recently died. And, and so, uh, of course, um, um, in, in these contexts, Kelsen is still regarded as, as the most important legal theorist. And there's been a lot of interesting work that's come out of these countries, um, which, which often isn't taken seriously enough, but, but but there are certainly um, authors even now who take forward a Kelsenian project in a systematic way and, and generate 
important and interesting insights that that are not always considered adequately um, um, by people who have this more heart-centered perspective. And so I think there clearly is still uh, a relevance of, of the legal theory, and I hope that the prominence of the theory will increase as more texts are translated and, and more work is done on Kelsen that's accessible to English audiences. I mean, the, the other um, point of interest for me, of course, is the political theory, as I said earlier. And I think that Kelsen's political theory and his constitutional theory as well uh, are very, very timely, very relevant, um, and, and make a number of, of interesting contributions potentially to a contemporary debate. So, so just to give an example that connects to something I said earlier, I mean, there's still a very, very lively debate about the, the justifiability of um, judicial review um, or constitutional review. And, and very often the debate is framed as, as a debate between um, political constitutionalists like Jeremy Waldron and, and someone like Ronald Dworkin, who has this very, very um, substantive moralized conception of law that flows from his interpretive approach. And, and often people think that um, these are the, the, the two main theoretical options in that debate. And so Kelsen is someone who, on the one hand, is a very staunch defender of um, constitutional review. But on the other hand, he, he, he quite clearly rejects the sort of moralized understanding of constitutional law that you find in someone like Dworkin. And so, so he's offering arguments that do not make the same assumptions as, as the, the assumptions that are made by Dworkinian defenders of constitutional review. So what he does is to try to show that you can interpret the idea of democracy in a way that um, shows that, that constitutional review rightly practiced is a useful addition to a democratic polity. Um, so it's so an argument here that's not explicitly liberal, but democratic. And this is an interesting point of view to take in the contemporary context, because people think that once you focus on democracy, you must reject constitutional review. And so, um, interestingly, Schmidt himself is someone who, who is very much uh, enamored with the idea that a constitution must have a thick moral substance, but at the same time, he is opposed to judicial review. So you see in this earlier debate that contemporary front lines are somehow switched around and interchanged and that argumentative possibilities are explored that we no longer recognize. And so I think that makes these debates extremely interesting today. And, and similar claims could be made about, I think, the democratic theory in Kells. Yes, thank you very much. Um, it's it's really been a pleasure to talk to someone who can speak about this so knowledgeably and so eruditely. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Yeah, thanks Thanks for this interview. This was great fun. And uh, um, I'm, I'm very happy to have had the opportunity to speak to you. Thank you very much. Is there anything before we finish, any work or publications of yours that are coming up? Not right now. I guess, um, so one, one thing that, that could be mentioned is in last year, I think 2021, uh, together with uh, Samuel Zeitlin, I published uh, a translation of some of Carl Schmitt's um, legal theoretical works that were inaccessible in English. So so that might have a some connection to this to this debate. But, oh, I think definitely that would be of interest to people listening to this. So. I mean, so we're planning to do a translation as well of of some of Kelsen's um, political writings, but but that won't appear for the next three or four years, I guess. So, okay. Well, thank you very much. Yes, thank you. See you.